Welcome to the Center of Everywhere podcast, where we explore stories of rural Minnesotans who are making a difference in their communities. Rural isn't in the middle of nowhere. It is in the center of everywhere. Welcome to the Center for Rural Policy and Development Center of Everywhere podcast. I'm Marnie Werner, Vice President at the Center, and with me today is Kelly Ash, our Research Associate. Hi, Marnie. Hi. Today, we're going to be talking about, well, what would you like to call it, the, the impact of COVID? Yeah, in- I think some of the trends that we've seen, you know, going through COVID, both in terms of people's health, sickness, deaths, but also some of the economic trends, right? So, you know, this was a global pandemic, something incredibly serious that impacted everybody across the board. And so it's really, you know, looking at trend lines in our economics, our workforce, in our healthcare, in our childcare, we're going to see blips, right? It's going to be something that's kind of outside of the normal trend line. So that's what we're starting to look at now that the data is starting to filter in and, and come back from the past couple of years. And so now we can kind of get a sense of like, you know, what, what did the impact do? And that's the thing that I thought was kind of interesting is that this is new data where there's not an abundance of data on this yet, even though you would think there would be, but we have like the basic once over lightly kind of information, you know, statistics now. And so we can look at those, but there'll be a lot more in the future to come. Right. It's always the issue with data and the work that we do, Marnie, right. Is everybody, wants the answer of how they're feeling and seeing things right now, but the data lag is always one to two years out. And so we always have to say like, well, anecdotally, this is what we're seeing, but in two years, we'll have some data to let you know actually what yeah. happened. <laughs> yeah, that's it really. You know, it's, it's, we work with what we have. So I guess the first thing to look at then is, you know, the number of cases and where they hit in the state and who they hit in the state and any speculations as to why? Well, that was quite interesting. I I have to admit, you know, before seeing the data, I kind of was operating under the assumption that a lot of public health and a lot of research around um, pandemics in the past is that typically there were some places where you have highly dense populations, right? Because it's just so much easier to spread it around. This is kind of the way it always was historically during pandemics is that it would hit harder in these areas where a lot of people were around. And then when you had more space, it just didn't spread maybe as much. Um, And now after looking at the data, what's kind of interesting is really what we're seeing is um, that the impacts are greater in places where health outcomes are worse. So in terms of infections and the spread of uh, COVID-19, it follows kind of what you would expect, that more densely populated areas typically saw a higher rate of infection of COVID-19 than in rural areas. Um, Interestingly, though, uh, is there seems to be a little bit of nuance in there in that 
you know how we usually do things we have we group some counties into entirely rural counties and then we have counties that are town and rural and then we have counties that have some urban some town and some rural and then we have counties that are entirely urban that's more of a reflection of their population density right not necessarily so much where they are Correct. Correct. Yeah. Population density, as well as um, what I call their connection to places. So right. um, uh, that part of that, of being an urban or a town area is if you're in a small town, but 30% of your population is going to a larger city for its employment, then it might be considered a town um, just because of that transport, that, that, that way that they're connected through employment. So it's not just about population, but also commuting patterns as well. Um, and so what's interesting, like, uh, based off of that is our entirely urban areas, isn't just a seven county Metro, but it's also these pockets in greater Minnesota where you see, uh, entirely urban counties such as blue earth County, Mm -hmm. uh, where Mankato sits and St. Louis County and Duluth, uh, and where Rochester is down South and those types of counties. So. When we first ran the numbers, just looking at infections, so we're not looking at the number of deaths, just infections per 100,000 people. What was interesting is that those entirely urban counties was actually quite low. Um, uh, so entirely urban and entirely rural counties were pretty similar infection rates. And the highest was actually in the urban town rural counties. Um, so that might be more like... Um, Oh, what would be a good example? Alexandria? Yeah, those types of places, Places. right? Um, Yeah, we saw really high infections in those those counties. I think we had a conversation about this. We're like, well, that's kind of interesting. Why would that be? Why didn't that follow? And I think it was you or Whitney uh, brought up, how about if we took out the seven-county metro out of Mm -hmm. the entirely urban group? What does it look like then? And Interestingly, as soon as we took that out, the seven county metro, the entirely urban counties that are left, which again was like Blue Earth, St. Louis, and some lowest, it was number one. It was the highest rate. Mm -hmm. And so there was definitely a change between, there was a relationship, I should say, in being inside the seven county metro and being outside of the seven county metro. Very, very different infection outcomes. And I, this raises a lot of really interesting questions that I really can't answer. Um, we can only kind of speculate mm-hmm. on at this point. And I think as we continue to kind of look at the data and we kind of have a more re- retrospective uh, assessment of what all went down during this, I think we're going to come up with some really interesting ideas about what worked, what didn't, how much of this is cultural, how much mm-hmm. of this is infrastructure. Um, I, I, you know, I don't think we have a good grasp on as to why. Um, well, and I hate to speculate, but I, I'd be curious what you think about that, Marnie. I mean, yeah, when you got out of the seven county metro, even if you were urban, you were super high. And then if you were urban and the seven county metro, it wasn't very high. Yeah. Well, you know, we mapped those cases out too by county. And of course, a map doesn't do much good when you're on a podcast, but we'll try and post the map with the podcast on our website. But you can see there's a a really definite pattern of which counties have the highest case rate, you know, which is cases per 100,000 population. That way we can equalize the cases across counties. And um, 
when you look at the map, the highest rates are in counties like Stearns County, Candy, Ojai, Benton, um, Maurer, and those counties around Austin, Freeborn, uh, Nobles County, where Worthington is, and then Roseau County. And the one thing we could think of that those counties really have in common is they are big manufacturing centers. And some and a lot of that manufacturing in some of those counties is food production or other manufacturing that was deemed essential towards the beginning of the pandemic. And so those were places that were exempt from shutting down. They didn't have to shut down right away. But early on, they also didn't have the safety precautions in place yet because uh, there just wasn't time and they didn't have the materials yet and things like that. And so I would think, you know, when we check this, you know, going forward, I would think some of this would coincide with like the stories of early in 2020 of some of the food processing plants, you know, the big ones having to be shut down because so many workers were sick. And so, you know, I, I suspect that that's going to be a big part of it. Yep. And I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that is a, a big part of it. Um, you know, I think in today's political climate, um, the way that we talk about urban and rural, um, a lot of it sometimes gets blamed by, oh, they just didn't wear their masks or, you know, the vaccines uh, were a little bit lower and all these did play a role for sure. I don't doubt that. But also, I think a, probably a larger aspect of it is just flat out um, industry makeup, mm -hmm. you know, where people having to work in closely in close quarters to each other <laughs> during the pandemic when it was at its worst. And they were that first wave hit them really hard, uh, as you were saying uh, right away. And I think this ties into kind of the next piece of looking at deaths. Uh, per 100,000 people, again, to equalize that. And, you know, as I said before, infection rates, particularly are in, in entirely rural areas, was super low. But the death rate was super high. Right. Yet in those counties that we were just talking about, where they had really high infection rates, they had super, um, they had really quite low uh, death rates. And I think what we're seeing is that in those communities, in those kind of entirely rural and urban town, rural counties that have high number of manufacturing people, they're typically younger workers, probably a bit healthier. Um, and so we're able to kind of withstand the infection, I think, a lot more. Where when you get into our entirely rural counties, we have a much older population and a, a typically uh, quite a bit unhealthier population. Uh, and, you know, all the data shows that the infection COVID-19 was particularly hard on these two groups. Um, I always struggle with this word, Marnie, but it's a comorbidity. Comorbidity. Uh, yeah, that probably played a pretty big role in our entirely rural areas where typically a larger percentage of the population has to deal with a lot of type of health issues, particularly yeah. if you're older. So multiple health issues, like you might have diabetes, type two diabetes and a heart condition and you're overweight and that kind of combo pack of, of health issues was uh, especially hazardous for people when it came to COVID. 
So I think that's what's kind of interesting. I think, you know, a big story that's going to come out on this data is we can't just look at infections in terms of how successful we've been. There's a lot of nuance there uh, regarding infection rates. So high infection rates didn't necessarily equal high death rates in terms of when we started looking at it as ruralness versus urbanness. But it's going to be a lot of other factors, you know, industry makeup, um, the demographic makeup. Uh, the health makeup of the communities. Uh, these are all going to play a pretty significant role. And it's going to get complicated to try and mm -hmm. tease out a lot of those variables. But, you know, I think it falls in line with you know, what a lot of us were thinking is like, yeah, it may not spread as much out here, but when, if it does spread, it spreads to the people that it's going to hit the hardest and be most severe. Uh, right. And that's kind of what we're seeing in the data with uh, our most rural areas in the state. Yep. I think that's going to be a big story you know, one of the big takeaways from this. Yeah. So vaccination rates. Yeah. You know, you almost don't want to wade into this topic, but we really do because, you know, it's, there's, there's a connection. Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, there absolutely, that will be another one of the variables about looking at death rates. <clears throat> you know, why were they highest in places outside of particularly the seven county metro? Um, mm -hmm. And one of those variables is going to be vaccination. I mean, the data is completely clear that if you're vaccinated, the chance of death is in having severe uh, reaction to COVID-19 is significantly lower. Um, and so, yeah, we were able to look at vaccination rates by county uh, and we kind of grouped them together again by, you know, our entirely rural to entirely urban spectrum. And not surprisingly, um, our entirely uh, urban counties had significantly higher uh, vaccination rates. And I should say that this data that we got is up to the beginning of February. So we're a little bit, right. you know, it's lagging now, but I know mm -hmm. vaccination, um, continued vaccination has really dropped off. So it's probably not, hasn't changed that significantly since this time. But uh, in entire entirely urban counties, we were uh, in the state of Minnesota right around 75%. Uh, either having one dose or both doses, both were, you know, one, you know, having one dose was near 80% and having both doses was closer to 72% or 73% in those counties. Uh, so pretty high. And I think that's really, really good. Um, the, some of the uh, areas that are uh, the types of counties that saw the lowest were not surprisingly, the more rural we got. So for our rural counties, it was right around you know, having both doses, uh, 50, about 57% to 64% was kind of the range throughout a lot of our most rural counties. Um, and, and interestingly, I think when we looked at the county map, uh, just kind of looking at different mm -hmm. regions, some of the lowest rates were actually, I would say in our north central and just north of the seven county metro, that kind of ring around there. We saw a lot right. of counties there having, you know, 40, you know, right around half, 50% mm -hmm. having both doses. And I'm not, I don't have like a good explanation as to why that particular region was super low. Because when you got onto like really Western Minnesota, where we did have an older population, it, it was some of the higher rates uh, in our most rural areas of the state was actually uh, in some of those places in Western Minnesota. So, so that one, I, yeah. I, I can't quite explain. And it could be culture, it could be uh, access to the vaccine. It could be, you know, these are the types of places that um, have high commuting to the seven county metro. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if that played a role. Yeah, it's this. 
this one is, I can't quite explain. I don't know if you have any ideas, Marty. <laughs> well, not, not really. Yeah. I, that's one of those things where we will just wait for more data and see what comes out. Something like that might also require some qualitative methodology to that's have some what conversations, thinking, yeah. kind of figure out, yeah, figure out, figure out what happened What there. the story was. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But, you know, I think it is worth noting um, compared to a lot of other rural areas in the United States, particularly when you get down to Alabama, Mississippi, and some of those, um, uh, even Florida, uh, our rural areas uh, were significantly more <laughs> vaccinated than a lot of rural areas in the United States. Uh, so that's something to be proud of, something to hang our, our hat on. So even mm -hmm. it was, though it was lower than our more urban areas, there was still, I mean, almost every county had over half of its population vaccinated. So. Yeah, that's, that's still something to, you know, that's still a, a something to, uh, like you say, hang our hat on. Uh, some counties yeah. in the United States are, I don't know, they barely had 20 or 30% of their population yeah. vaccinated. So. Yeah. Well, it, and now you, um, you had data on vaccination rates by racial groups and ethnic groups. And so that was, that was some interesting data too. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, uh, kudos to the department of health in Minnesota to having this data available. It's been really fabulous to kind of peruse through. I, I think it's interesting, you know, in, in rural Minnesota, we have a pretty good size population of immigrant refugee populations, which is a little bit harder to kind of tease out um, because uh, in terms of the larger, let's say, African-American population in the Seven County Metro compared to maybe like, let's say, the Somali population in Wilmer, um, they just dwarf it so much that we can't mm -hmm. tease out too much because we couldn't get this data by county. So this is statewide data. Um, but what's interesting is that um, looking at this information, so Asian Pacific Islanders had the highest vaccination rates in the state. Um, one dose, they had 86%, uh, this is the beginning of February, 86% of Asian Pacific Islanders um, were had at least one dose and 80% had both doses. That was by far the highest. The next highest percentage of um, race and ethnicity was white, uh, with 71% having at least one dose and 67% having both doses. A little surprising. I thought <clears throat> that would be closer to, uh, you know, a little bit higher, but Again, um, I, it would be really interesting to see what that looks like, the seven county metro versus everywhere else in the state. I bet mm -hmm. you would see quite a bit of difference there. Um, next up was Hispanic with uh, 71% uh, with one dose and 63% with both doses. Uh, and then it was uh, Black African American. And then the last one being American Indian. This one we were kind of interested in in rural Minnesota, um, large populations of American uh, Indian. And they had the lowest um, if uh, they were at 60.3% having one dose uh, and a little over half, 54% having both doses. So, and I think that's quite understandable. I would, you know, guess out of, you know, all populations, uh, according to race and ethnicity, American Indian would have been probably the hardest to get vaccinated due to some of the history of what they've had to deal with, with the American government uh, right. vaccinations and things like that. A lot of mistrust. I mean, very, very mm -hmm. understandable. And I know we've had um, <clears throat> Christina Bowstring on our 
board and having conversations with others that are involved in some of our tribal nations in the state. You know, they did a lot of work. They did a lot of work to try and get it. And I still think 60% is pretty darn good, honestly. Yeah. And we had um, our COVID collaborative webinar last week that you weren't able to be on, but we had a couple of couple of the panelists were members of the Mille Lacs band uh, from their human services department there. And they had some very interesting uh, stories to tell about vaccination on, on the reservation there. And, and yeah, it was just, you know, what you were talking about, it's, you know, vaccine hesitancy and just people being worried about you know, the information they're hearing, but also that history. And it's the same thing with the, you know, the African-American population and the history of the federal government experimenting on people with vaccinations and, and whatnot, and, and just, you know, what's dri- driven their reluctance over the, you know, with all of this. And, um, but just people that we've had on our two COVID webinars talking about that, and they've just explained, you know, what was driving this hesitancy and then also how they were helping people by just being available to answer all their questions and just helping people talk through their fears and you know understanding that their that their fear is real you know and just you know and just saying that's okay you know and helping them out with it and so that you know that could explain why we have actually, even though they're the lowest, they're actually, you know, probably higher than people from those groups in other parts of the country. And so, you know, 67% and 60%, that's pretty good. Yeah, I think so. Especially you know, considering it, that these groups traditionally just have trouble accessing healthcare. I think another data point that'll be really interesting going into the future is you know, you brought up um, African-American and its history with the federal government, but yet they're lumped in with the Somali population. Um, And I'd be curious from their perspective, coming from a war-torn country, you know, a government you couldn't trust at all coming in, how they responded and, and felt about the communication and the engagement with either the county government or, you know, county public health and getting the vaccine. I think that'll be some interesting information coming out, hopefully in the next year or two, uh, kind of taking a look at that stuff, because I would imagine it might be a very different reaction. Absolutely. Yeah. So vaccination rates and then um, hospitalizations. It's interesting, you know, you you put the, some charts together showing uh, the, basically the, you know, bed occupancy and ICU bed occupancy, and you broke it down by by region again, you know, entirely rural down up to entirely urban. And it's interesting looking at it across time because you could see that what looks like bed occupancy going up, but how much of that has to do with the fact that the total number of beds is actually going down? A lot, actually. Um, That was a little fascinating. Um, because I think a lot of us felt like there would be articles coming out and headlines saying, oh, we're you know near our ICU bed capacity or a hospital bed capacity inpatient. And, and that was true. But a lot of it was because some of those beds, the number of beds available in total 
changed throughout the pandemic for a number of reasons. So first off, I mean, we have to give a lot of credit to our hospital systems in managing which what was a crisis uh, and trying to really adapt to a fluctuating need and demand for certain types of beds, either hospital inpatient or ICU beds with only a limited amount of staff, right? So mm-hmm. you can't have a bed available if there's no one to staff it. That's it. So you, the bed could be sitting there. But if you don't have a specialized nurse to treat that person, that bed's there, but no one could be in it. It doesn't right? count. So the actual, it doesn't count. Um, and so when we looked at that data, it was really interesting because you kind of saw like, yeah, this gradual incline of beds being used, but you then also saw a gradual decline in the number of beds that were actually available due to, I think, staffing issues being one. But I also think hospital systems were pushing, you know, okay, we need more staff over our inpatient beds, but next week, some of these patients are getting bad. So we're going to shift more resources towards our ICU beds, take away some of the beds in the inpatient hospital side. And so I think they were just navigating a very fast changing and fluid uh, scenario every day Mm -hmm. uh, to try and manage this. And kudos to them, because I think they did a pretty wonderful job. Um, And I think another thing that needs to be mentioned is a lot of these particularly COVID patient beds, either ICU or inpatient, were taken on by our more urban uh, mm-hmm. hospitals. None of, uh, most of our rural, uh, most of our hospitals located in rural areas, one, weren't dealing with ICU beds or having COVID patients take up a bed in their inpatient hospital beds. Uh, those were being, those patients were being transferred to larger hospitals that had the resources and the infrastructure to deal with those patients. And so, you know, um, uh, I think at the end of this, there's going to have to be kind of a, an appreciation follow-up of like, hey, all the workers in these hospitals, thank you so much for taking care of our patients that might have been from a more rural area. Um, that's going to have to be acknowledged. Yes, absolutely. And then we have the financial health of the hospitals through all of this. It wasn't the greatest before the pandemic. We were doing, you know, analyses on that, you know, in 2018, 2019. And then the pandemic hit and we were kind of like, Ooh, what's, what's that going to do to the hospitals now? Yeah. And unfortunately we don't have the financial data right now. So again, in the, at the, at the state of Minnesota, Minnesota department of health, every hospital has to submit kind of the all bunch of financial information and about a bunch of information about their hospital at the end of the year, it's called the uh, hospital annual report. Great data. You could sort through it all. And we can essentially look at kind of what I call profit margins, but these are all nonprofits. They're not, you know, making profit. Um, But look at their margins to kind of figure out how they're doing financially, um, how healthy are they or unhealthy are they? And that data for 2020, when COVID started, um, we don't have that data. Only the data that just got released, I think like last month or the month before was a 2019 data. So at least we got a picture of like right before the pandemic hit, how are our hospitals doing? And then it'll be really interesting next year when the 2020 data comes out to kind of take a look. Um, and I think we'll see some interesting things because there is so much government money being pumped to our hospitals to help, mm-hmm. you know, beef up their infrastructure and kind of keep them uh, essentially liquid for a while. But in 2019, um, 
you know, the trend that we've seen from years previous is that the more rural our hospital is, the more likely it's probably not even making breaking even. Um, and so in 2019, we looked at average margin. And for folks that doesn't know, you know, maybe don't know what a margin is, essentially it's the uh, the amount of either profit or loss after all expenses have been accounted for, the amount that's left over either in profit or in loss as a percentage of the total revenue you brought in as a hospital. So that's that's a margin for any sort of business. And you talk to anybody, kind of hosp any hospital executive, and they're going to tell you they'd love to be around 4%. So meaning you have 4% revenue left over after you've paid all your expenses, right? Um, and that can help then reinvest in capital, you know, capital improvements and staff and growth, things like that. So... Uh, and with that 4%, our average margins for our entirely rural hospitals was negative 1.2%. <laughs> so essentially, um, uh, on not average, a, not a good one. No, no, yeah, not, not even breaking even. Going in the right direction Yeah, very much. And if we went to our hospitals that were town rural, uh, they were breaking even. That was their average margin was zero. Uh, and then the more urban we got, so for town or urban town, rural counties, uh, they had a average margin of 1.8% in 2019. And then our entirely urban hospitals had an average margin of 4.5%. So on average, they were doing better. And again, there's a lot, there's some variation and there's some mm -hmm. hospitals doing better than others. Um, but on average, 4.5% um, for entirely urban counties. And, and what, what do you think is driving that trend because I mean entirely rural counties and hospitals in entirely rural counties have just been on you know from 2016 to through to 2019 have just been kind of on a general downward slide profit wise what's what's going on there I would say probably a couple things one of the main things is that there's a pretty significant shift that has happened that has happened and is continuing to occur in how we fund healthcare. You know, the that's probably the one of the longer policy stories in America is that we spend a lot on healthcare and have some of the lowest health outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Particularly compared to other industrialized countries. Um, yep. And so policy has reacted to this in a way that says, all right, we're going to change the way that we fund healthcare. And we're going to change the way that we measure healthcare. And on the funding side of things, essentially, it has meant that we're going to really start funding based on outcomes, not based on services provided. And what this has meant is, let's say, for insurance companies, uh, health insurance companies, they can now say, for that particular, like, let's say, disease, you're treating somebody that has heart disease. We're paying, and this is a generalization. It's not quite mm -hmm. how it works, but it gives you the idea. We're paying $20,000 per year per patient that is going through this type of procedure and has this type of outcome. doesn't matter if you spent more, if that patient was way worse and you had to spend more, or it doesn't matter if that patient wasn't as severe and it cost you less to treat it. That's what we're paying, right? It's kind of like car insurance. Essentially, our hospitals now have to use economies of scale, have a big pool of patients with, with a lot of them that are not so costly, and then probably have a few that are super costly 
that it then kind of balances out. It's like an insurance company saying, all right, we're going to try and get a whole bunch of good drivers in our pool that don't cost us much because we know there are really bad drivers <laughs> and we want as few of those as possible. And then we spread that risk out. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, that's been the pressure and the push uh, for particularly hospital and healthcare systems to take on is that type of mentality. And so with hospitals that are in, in our entirely rural areas that typically have a smaller patient pool and that patient pool is unhealthier, probably costs more, is older, requires more services and isn't getting, and then those hospitals aren't getting reimbursed um, at the same rate as what it actually costs to serve that population because they're getting reimbursed as if their population is a more urban, healthier, younger pool. Mm-hmm. This is just the gradual, you know, it's, just, it's, the, it's the constant thing we see when we look at policy in rural areas is that the economies of scale just don't work. And so right. that kind of change of policy is really impacting hospitals and making them, it's really squeezing them. And it's why you see, you know, a lot of local clinics and healthcare providers that are in rural areas asking to be bought by larger healthcare systems because they know that's the only way they'll survive is if they kind of combine their pool with a much larger pool. And some hospitals haven't done that yet um, and are trying to come up with creative ways to do it. But it's kind of, and things are just getting more expensive. Equipment's more expensive. Mm -hmm. The services offered are getting more expensive um, to attract staff is becoming more expensive. Uh, so all these things are playing a role. Yeah. So that leads us into, you know, our economic section here now. Um, you know, it's uh, in the, the COVID report that we're putting together for this, we titled this section, an atypical economic downturn, because it's, it's not quite what you would expect in a normal situation. It really isn't. Um, And this is kind of, it ties into, I think, pre-pandemic and the workforce shortages that rural areas have been seeing severely for, you know, since 2000 and at least 2013, uh, right after the Great Recession. Um, And it's kind of one of those things, I think a lot of us in rural areas, we hear people talking about an economic crisis and we kind of look around asking, all right, where is this crisis? Um, We're not seeing it. Uh, and that's not to say like things are great and grand, but we just went through a global pandemic. And I think the honest researcher and expert looking at any, any country or economic system that goes through a pandemic, you would expect a significant recession and a significant decline and a whole bunch mm-hmm. of economic indicators. And that's just not what we saw. And this is yeah. a very different it's a different beast. This isn't a recession. It's not anything, an economic downturn like we've ever seen before. And to show, like uh, we put together a a few charts. Um, I always love talking about job vacancy rates because I feel like, you know, it's something we've talked about for a long time and more recently has really started to hit a lot of major newspapers as something that we need to pay attention to. You know, before the pandemic hit, the job vacancy rate, which is the number of job openings, as a percentage of the number of jobs that are actually filled. So the higher the rate, the more challenging it's likely going to be for an employer to find a pool of applicants to apply for their job. We consider 3% job vacancy rate to be pretty healthy. That means you have enough jobs on the market that people have opportunity, but you don't have so many jobs 
that there's still a pool of applicants going for each individual job uh, to make this whole system work, right? So before the pandemic began, let's say 2008, 2019, we have places, regions in outside of the seven county metro, like Northwest, Southwest, uh, even Northeast, that were over 6% job vacancy rate. That's mm -hmm. insane. That's absolutely crazy, crazy bonkers. Um, by 2020, so the 2020 data came out, and that was right when the pandemic hit. And I think all of us expected the job vacancy rate to just tank. You had all these businesses that had to close. Tons of people laid off, right? Like, oh, mm -hmm. the job vacancy rate is just going to be like 1% or maybe it'll, yeah, you know, uh, during the Great Recession, you know, the job vacancy rate was right around zero, you know, between 0.5% mm -hmm. and 1%. Still in 2020, the job vacancy rate uh, was 4% or higher. Even Seven County Metro was 4% uh, in Southwest, it was 5.2%. I mean, it's just still really high job yeah. vacancy rates. Um, and I think a couple of reasons for that is one, it really kind of depended where the service industry played the biggest role. Um, so like in Southwest, the service industry isn't huge, right? But mm -hmm. manufacturing, which had to keep going, was an essential service, deemed an essential uh, industry, had to continue through the pandemic. Um, you know, they had to hire. And I think you had people getting sick, leaving the workforce. And so they were trying to hire people back on. I think it was just, you had a lot of stuff going on. And so well, it stayed pretty high. And you look at... I think the the thing here is that the the economic impact of this wasn't over everybody like it was say in the great recession the impact was very particular about which industries it hit so like you're mentioning the service industry that was what was hit especially hard was the restaurants and movie theaters and those related things and so like you say when you look at the data for Southwest Minnesota, where manufacturing and healthcare are the biggest employers, um, you know, those are were the ones that were going to keep going and still needed people during the pandemic. Whereas yep. you look at the metro area, the biggest employers there are service industries, uh, finance, things like that. But you think about the concentration of restaurants and and you look at their employment rates and how they were affected. And it's very apparent in the metro area what happened there. Absolutely. And we also set up policies to essentially incentivize people to kind of hang out on the sidelines for a little while because we expected those jobs to come back. We didn't, you know, so I think people were trying to hire, but you're trying to grab from a pool that are sitting and just kind of hanging out, waiting for their old jobs to return because that was the expectation, right? Mm -hmm. Is this is a, blip let's get through this for six months or whatever and then we expect to be open again and get back to your jobs which i think was very appropriate um, mm -hmm. at that time and so yeah you kind of had this log jam of like you had increasing economic activity in the manufacturing and healthcare. they needed more workers but yet we didn't produce more workers because the sector closed we essentially floated them for a while you know platoon them for a while uh, so they would kind of just hang out. It wasn't as if a normal uh, recession where a few industries tank, all those people are unemployed looking for work. Mm -hmm. This was a, a situation where entire industries closed down, but those people weren't looking for work at the time. So it's just a very different, yeah. Yeah. it's a very different situation. And, and you could see that actually really reflected in the sales tax revenue. 
So yeah. I, I think those charts that you have on the uh, local option sales tax are really interesting. And I should mention, you know, again, we're talking about this on a podcast, we're talking about visual things. We are putting all of this together into a report that should be coming out in about a month or so. And it'll have all of these charts and uh, narrative to explain them. And it's gonna be a really nice like starting point for here's where we are with COVID. And then, you know, we'll be able to add to it as, as the data comes in, but sales taxes. Yeah, so this really ties into something I think a lot of folks are maybe a bit excited about coming out of the pandemic. Um, I know me, anecdotally, and a lot of my friends, uh, and I think you talked about this and all of our colleagues kind of talked about this, is when the pandemic hit, a lot of us stopped going far out to mm -hmm. do our shopping. We kind of just like, all right, let's just stick to what we know close by, and we don't need to go out to all these places. And what we can't get, we'll just order from Amazon and have it delivered to us. Right? Yeah, exactly. And so you had this, this really interesting situation in which shopping behaviors change, that people, more local people were shopping local, while at the same time increasing their shopping online. So what mm -hmm. this means for local option sales tax is that you had more local people shopping local, so you collect those sales taxes. But then you also collect the sales taxes of everyone shopping online. Right. And so what this meant for our rural areas, for our communities that have a local option sales tax and counties that do in greater Minnesota, you either saw it stay completely even or even increase during the pandemic. It was pretty wild, right? Like we all expected right. it to just like drop off a cliff. Mm -hmm. That didn't happen at all. However, yes. <laughs> the seven county Minneapolis... Uh, the Minneapolis uh, local option sales tax totally dropped off a cliff. And it really makes sense, right? You didn't have mm -hmm. Timberwolves games. You didn't have people coming to Twins games. Like you had all these things that bring in large amounts of tax dollars into your community With because you have all these events. Hotels and restaurants yeah, and things yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. All of that just, just yep. was wiped out. And so that they were really the main ones to get impacted the most negatively mm -hmm. is Minneapolis. And so I think, you know, looking forward from a policy perspective and even from a news perspective, when we talk about maybe an economic crisis or we're talking about this being hard on the economy, I think for places like Minneapolis, maybe probably St. Paul and other places that really rely on things being open, people attending, really being a uh, tax importer from regions mm -hmm. around the state, they got beat up bad. But that money that wasn't being spent there was being spent in our in their local communities. So they were no longer exporting their tax dollars, but rather spending those dollars in their local community or on Amazon where the tax dollars still got collected. So that's right. kind of the big story coming out of that. And and one thing I noticed here in Mankato, and I don't know if you saw it in New London and Wilmer too, but when this all started and the restaurants had to close, but they were offering takeout, a lot of restaurants that weren't doing takeout, they were sit-down restaurants, started doing that. And the local chamber here started a Facebook page. So all these restaurants could just say, here's our, our family night special, you know, meatloaf dinner for four for 20 bucks, you know, and it gave them an opportunity to really advertise things like that. 
And I think, really think people in town saw this as a way of supporting their community was by spending money, <laughs> spending money at their local restaurants, you know, and keeping them alive. And so I think, you know, I think there was that, just that community vitality kind of aspect to it too, where, you know, let's support our local businesses. I, I think you're right. I think, I think it was a combination of necessity. Okay, we can't go out. So where can I find this stuff local? And two, yeah, these guys are still doing it. I see there's, you know, I see how much they're suffering because of this. Let's go help them out. I know these people. Um, and I know in New London and even Wilmer talking to like, let's say New London here, we have a lot of boutique clothing stores. I was expecting them to say like, oh yeah, we, I expected a lot of them to close shop. And when I went around talking to them, they're like, no, actually we had one of our best years because it was a combination of, we didn't make as much revenue, um, but we still had a really good customer base that came and shopped and we were able to significantly lower our expenses through reduction in staff and government payouts helped a ton too mm -hmm. to kind of keep them afloat. So that combination of things really did help them. And I would argue help them kind of rethink coming out of the pandemic now and how their, their business model functions. I've heard from so many of them. They're like, yeah, we kind of learned how to not, how to do this without having so much overhead, um, you know, either through less inventory or less staff. I think it just changed up a lot of things. And even in the restaurants now, their ability to do takeout has changed significantly. Mm -hmm. You can tell the investments they make, you can order stuff online um, uh, with all the restaurants here now. Like they just kind of, that infrastructure that they invested in continued. And I think it's paying off for a lot of them. Well, and one thing too about, you know, you're talking about people not going to the Twin Cities for sporting events and whatnot. But when you look at resorts up north and they kind of had banner years these last two years, didn't they? Because everybody wanted to get out of town. That's it. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I think when we talk about community support, I, you know, I remember seeing articles and talking to some of my friends that are in the Twin Cities that, oh yeah, we just tried to shop at all these local restaurants as much as we could, you know, in South Minneapolis or whatever. I think they did that, but because their economy, you know, that's such a small slice of their overall economy with the hotels, lodging, food, people coming from the outside is a huge portion. You took all that away. You would think that would then be the same for resorts on the North shore and things like that. But that actually became the destination for a lot of folks because they're like, all right, I'm going to go somewhere where there isn't a lot of people and there's mm -hmm. just nature. I remember hearing like it was a banner year for the boundary waters and all the campsites up there. Where yeah. it's just like, everybody's like, this is my one year I'm off. So I might as well try this out. I've always wanted to try it. Yeah, and, and the resorts really well. were just like at capacity, you know, yep. completely at capacity all summer and, you know, even into the winter, some of them. But and I remember too, yeah. they, it was at capacity while also lacking staff, right? So exactly. I think it was, it was awesome, but stressful at the same time for yes. a lot of them. Yes. Now on another, you know, workforce based uh, finding, it was uh, remote work turned out to be pretty interesting and pretty telling, the stats on that. I mean, it's, yeah, so Deed put out a report, uh, wrote a really great article, go check it out if anybody has a chance, looking at the number of jobs, they kind of went through their, 
what do you want to call it? Like uh, their job database. So not, mm-hmm. not jobs that are filled, but open jobs that are, uh, you know, on their, their website. And they just did a quick calculation to kind of figure out, okay, how many of these jobs are offering the ability to do remote work with that job? And it was stark uh, when you looked at the jobs by region. So in a Twin Cities metro, 13% of the jobs available were being offered as remote. You could do them remotely. That's huge. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, previous it was 1%. <laughs> it went from 1% to 13% in like a year. Yeah, <laughs> That's pretty significant. And I don't know if we'll see that change much. It might decrease a little bit, but I, it kind of might be the, the new thing. Uh, Northeast Minnesota, uh, interestingly, was really high too, 8.2%. I found that kind of surprising, um, but really cool to see. The next one was Southeast, so like Rochester and some of those areas, was 7.5%. So those were the top regions with the highest percentage of their jobs available um, uh, that were being offered remotely. And then it just went way down. So the next highest was Northwest Minnesota at 2.4%. So we went from 7.5% of jobs in Southeast being remote uh, to Northwest being at 2.4%. And then it was 2% of the jobs in Central and Southwest. And again, I think this is industry makeup. Mm-hmm. You know, in Southwest Minnesota, you have a lot more jobs that are manufacturing or kind of hands-on. You need to be there. Uh, so you can't do those remotely where, you know, the Twin Cities and some of those other places, it might be more finance, research type, those types of things that can be done um, uh, remotely. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. But again, I mean, even that 2% in Southwest, I guarantee you, you know, the year before it was probably 0.2% right. <laughs> of jobs available. So that 2% is still pretty, pretty crazy uh, uh, jump. But yeah. Yeah, I, I think as far as remote work goes, I think we've kind of crossed a, a threshold, a watershed now. We we used to do a lot of research on broadband and there was always this discussion of how do we convince employers to let their employees work remotely, you know, and, oh, we need to change this culture of having to have butts in seats and the supervisor being able to watch employees. Well, that, you know, we were forced to change that now in the last two years. And so I think we've kind of, we've crossed that line. What do you think? So one of the things coming, or some of that research, I should say, coming out of the University of Minnesota Extension actually dived into this idea of like, all right, is this, we saw a lot of people that had to go remote. Um, Is this kind of a watershed moment? And how have people, employers learned from this transition? And it was really fascinating. You know, one of the biggest things is employers learning on the fly how to implement policies to kind of like track progress, make sure people are doing their work, what this looks like. It's a very different I don't know what you'd call it, like framework mm-hmm. of having people right next to you versus not being able to see them and having only to track their progress by the work they do rather than what you see them doing, right? Um, and so I think employers are, are starting to figure this out. They're trying to figure it out. But I think a lot of them too are realizing that maybe some sort of hybrid, you know, maybe we need to see you once a week or once every few weeks just to kind of check in on a few things. I think management in particular is is trying to figure this out the most, right? So I think a lot of people that work from home, they're fine with it. We figured it out. I think it's management. They're, they're trying to figure out like, all right, how do we appropriately, one, you know, measure progress being made and make sure and keep track of things. But two, how do we support our employees to make sure they're 
comfortable at their home. What that the, they can you know, do are their they, jobs. That they, yep, and do it well and keep, take care of their bodies. And, you know, do we know how to do all these things? So, yeah, I think they're working through it. But now it's just kind of the big questions. I think you're going to see a lot of stuff kind of best practices coming out now. Things learned, you know, they're going to start sharing a lot of stuff uh, to try and figure out how to best do this. So. Right. Yeah. And so staying on that employment topic, uh, one of the big findings, um, not just with us, but that everybody was noticing was how the pandemic affected the, you know, the number of women in the workforce. We could look at the employment numbers overall, but when you started breaking it down by men and women, you saw a real definite impact there. Well, yeah, what's interesting is I saw it particularly if we broke it down by ruralness and urbanness. Mm -hmm. And I, I was actually a little surprised by this. Um, so in the seven county metro, well, let's just say the number of people overall participating in the labor force has declined across the board. It doesn't matter if you're mm -hmm. rural, urban, it's gone down. Um, not a big shocker to anybody if you've been following the news or, or own a business or trying to hire folks that that occurred. Um, but when we broke it down by gender, what's interesting is in our entirely urban counties, so our very urban counties, seven county metro and some of the other places in, outside of the seven county metro, is that the drop in the labor force among female and male was about the same. Uh, mm -hmm. I was kind of surprised. It was a very similar drop. The largest, but when we got outside of the seven county metro, that's where we saw a bigger drop off. More females dropped off as a percentage of the female workforce uh, left the workforce compared to males. And that was kind of interesting. I don't know if I have a great explanation for it. Maybe you do, Marty. Well, yeah, <laughs> I think people figured out pretty quickly that, you know, in, in a lot of families with kids, uh, the parents just decided that when all the schools closed and the kids had to stay home, you know, when push came to shove of deciding who was staying home with the kids, uh, it was the women, you know, the moms ended up staying home with the kids. And so I think you really see that reflected in the data when you see that drop off from 2019 to 2020 and into 2021. And the thing is that, you know, it's, it's still a little early to see how much overall those workforce numbers have recovered of people going back to work. But what we do have shows it's pretty apparent that the men, you know, are going back to work but the women, not so much, you know, they, the, that number for women too is increasing, but just not nearly as much, you know, or it's even staying flat. And so uh, that just leads into, you know, the issue of childcare and, yeah. you know, my big topic. And so, yeah. And um, I mentioned on a webinar not too long ago about, you know, the last two years being chaotic for childcare and childcare providers and families. And I've had providers say, yep, chaotic was exactly the right word. Um, it was uh, 
they had a huge impact on child care providers. They, in Minnesota at least, they didn't necessarily have to shut down or they didn't, or maybe they did right at the beginning. I don't remember exactly, but then they could open back up again when they could get their, you know, their sanitizing, sanitization practices in place and everything. But it did have a big impact on just their ability to uh, look after kids. There were staffing issues. There were families who decided to just keep their kids home and not send them to daycare. So if the kids didn't have to go to school, if you know mom or dad didn't have to go to work, then let's just keep the kids at home and save some money. And, and so um, it was those two big things, staffing issues, increased expenses, um, and not just from sanitizing. Some of those expenses, maybe a lot of those expenses also had to do with the fact that you know, in some industries, in some businesses, workers could make up, could make more money staying home on unemployment than they could at their job. And childcare, unfortunately, was in one of those, you know, one of those situations. Or the, um, the staff members got sick and couldn't come in for two weeks or they just didn't want to come in because they were concerned about getting sick themselves or bringing it home to family members who had, you know, health issues then, and they didn't want to get them sick. And so you had a lot of staff, you know, dropping out and it was just, um, it was a mess. Now, interestingly, when you look at the numbers overall, when you look at the number of providers in centers versus family providers, which are the in-home childcare, the family providers, that the capacity for that overall has been dropping steadily for the last 20 years. But in the last few years, that drop was like they were losing 5,000 slots a year statewide, 4,000 slots a year, 6,000 slots a year statewide in family childcare. In 2020, they actually only lost about, if I remember correctly, it was about 3,000 slots. So that was actually an improvement. <laughs> now that doesn't reflect the number of providers, whether they were family or centers that closed and the ones that then also opened in 2020. That's going to take a little more digging to look to figure that out. And, you know, and did the pandemic have an impact on providers closing any more than in pre-pandemic years? But one thing that is pretty certain, anecdotally at least, is that the emergency grants that the state started right away were a an absolute lifeline for providers. We would have lost much, much more capacity if the state hadn't been giving those, uh, providing those emergency grants to providers just to make them whole, to make up for the income they were losing uh, from their families and their increased expenses. I've heard in other states who didn't do similar grants like this, losing just tragic amounts of childcare capacity, like half their childcare capacity. And so Minnesota actually got off fairly well in that situation. 
And so, yeah, so it'll be really interesting to see uh, what kind of lessons we can learn from the last two years, just um, in how maybe solutions, maybe what is the core problem and what might be the core solutions to figuring out childcare, because it has certainly been a very interesting unintentional experiment. I think in general, if we were to look at this data, so not only childcare, but the economic data. So if we leave out the tragicness of sickness and death and those things, but look at where I feel like policy really tried to make the biggest impact, which was let's deal with this public health crisis, but let's support our businesses, our childcare and everything else to the best way possible. Looking at this data, I would say Minnesota was pretty successful. Um, things are tough. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. But again, it's, it was a global pandemic and we're walking out of this. I don't want to say unscathed, but in a sense, like, I feel like there's a lot of optimism here. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the one thing I think I get frustrated with, particularly in the current discourse of how we talk about politics or policies or, uh, and, and things like that is that we've never take the time to pat ourselves on the back and say, Hey, you know what? This was crazy, but we did all right. Like we've kind of figured some things out. We helped people out and businesses were relatively able to stay afloat and they were able to, and businesses did really good at reinvesting and rethinking. And you know what? We maybe learned something from childcare about, yeah, subsidizing them might be a good idea. You know, like I feel like if we would just take a moment to focus on what we did right on this. There's a lot mm -hmm. to be hopeful for. And, and that's kind of my big takeaway here. And, and how well we did at each level from state on down to local, uh, just the grassroots people, you know, putting their minds and creativity to work to come up with a way to address their corner of the world. You know, in a, Again, in Mankato, we had the Facebook group called the Mankato Toilet Paper Sighting Facebook group. And that was born out of the toilet paper shortage. But it turned into, uh, you know, cleaning supplies and baby formula and pet food and, and things you couldn't find. And then it became kind of a community discussion thing. And then for a while, it was kind of a public safety thing. And it was just kind of neighbors watching out for each other, but just taking the initiative and showing that they didn't have to wait for someone to come along and save them, which yep. was my favorite thing out of all of this. Yeah, it was a good combination of, I would say, government intervention and people doing what was right and good and yes. taking it upon themselves. It's what we would hope for right? <laughs> in a situation like this. Yes. I just wish we would actually acknowledge it and take the time to say, yeah, good job. Nobody <laughs> talks about the million people who crossed the street successfully today. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So well, I'm looking forward great. to getting this published. I think to our listeners, uh, we're working on it now. I think probably in the next few weeks, we'll have something on our website to kind of show people and yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, we'll, we'll have this report and we'll be doing another webinar around this report more specifically. And so that's something to look forward to. 
You've been listening to the Center of Everywhere podcast, where we explore stories of rural Minnesotans who are making a difference in their communities. Rural isn't in the middle of nowhere. It is in the center of everywhere. Everywhere.